This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me here to kick off 2014, a brand new year, is my friend, my cohort in sports ball, and Dr. Trek himself, Larry Nemechek. Larry, welcome. I think this is the first time you've joined me here on our Enterprise show, isn't it? Boomer sooner. (laughs) And you were going to get that out there, yes. Larry and I survived our Sugar Bowl face-off, Alabama versus Oklahoma, and Larry yes. won. So it was all it was my fault, all my credit. I did it all. That team was just my remote puppet. Yeah, yeah. All you me. did. You did it all via Twitter. I love it when fans congratulate or people congratulate a fan. Hey, good job on the Sugar Bowl there. <laughs> yes, I did it all. Yeah, my That's minions. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, we we survived it, and sports ball season is now over for college football anyway uh, for everyone so we're going to jump right on into Star Trek here <laughs> but as the listeners all breathe a sigh of relief yes definitely uh, so Larry this week the Enterprise season 3 Blu-rays finally dropped and people are getting those in their hands and so I thought that a good topic for the show this week would be to talk about season 3 but not talk about it in terms of reviewing the episodes and what happened on the screen so much but kind of what happened leading into the season, what the mood was like, uh, both with the writing staff, with the actors, uh, as well as with the studio, and then what we actually got in season three, how it played out, and uh, where we think that that went. And, you know, longtime Star Trek fans, of course, read a lot of your writing in Star Trek Communicator back when Enterprise was in first run. So if, if we kick off thinking about the end of season two, what was the mood like? around there as as they were wrapping that and you know i i know the studio was kind of pushing for maybe something a little bit more dynamic kind of kick up those ratings but what what was it like well yeah the second season of enterprise was really as much as i liked the show and thought it got dumped on a little bit too much and there's some you know surprising myths that can be busted about it such as the last year I think I've said this before on your air that the last year there were actually a million more people a week watching Enterprise than the first year of Battlestar Galactica, but no one, it never did, you know, the perception was exactly opposite because Ron Moore's Battlestar Galactica reboot was, uh, you know, a big fish in a small pond and Enterprise was a, was a little fish in a huge overpopulated and 
and uh, partly polluted pond <laughs> when you think about how <laughs> crappy a little network uh, UPN was, you know, and they'd be on cha channel 82 where the hockey game in nine cities would bump them to, you know, a billion AM or something. Right. You know? Well, I was going to say in terms of a, I think with Enterprise too, I mean, a, with it being Star Trek, a big fish in a small pond might apply as well as if you're talking about UPN. Now, of course, if you're talking about Paramount in general, that's a, that's a big pond, but I know Enterprise was still, I believe, the highest rated show on the network, was it not? Oh, yeah, it was always the highest rated show on the network, at least until they brought on wrestling. Yeah, so and, – and here's the thing for people to understand here. Now, we, we, you know, now people have kind of gotten their heads into saying CBS, which was weird for me the first few years because you know CBS was what? The network that turned Gene down when he first was pitching the cage and it went right. to NBC, which that's just like, okay, well, you hang around long enough and wacky things happen. But, uh, of course, the players and the mood and the mode and all that, corporate owners are all different anyway. But the thing about uh, CBS having start, inherited Star Trek now after the Viacom divorce, as I call it, in 2006. But before that, uh, you, we say Paramount. Par, you know, Paramount for years, Paramount this, Paramount that. UPN, the United Paramount Network, was a network. And Star Trek was actually made by Paramount TV, just like Warner Brothers TV might make a show that's on NBC. It might make a show that's on CBS. And Paramount TV, you know, made the Brady Bunch for ABC. And Paramount TV, you know, made shows for different networks. And it just happened that Paramount Television made Star Trek for syndication first and then made it for UPN, Voyager which was you know the debut show on UPN and then Enterprise right. after that. So as the as the Enterprise saga goes along and we talk about a lot of these issues, we talk about UPN. Don't it's it's not this monolithic Paramount thing. It's the UPN network in discussions with Paramount TV, the TV studio. Because once the show's off the air, whether it's the huge hit or it get canceled after thirteen shows, you know whatever. After a show is off the air, the network could care less about it. It's the studio that's going to have the, all the residual. You know, value of a show. It'll go back into their stable for syndication to sell DVDs and Blu-rays, to do the licensing merchandise, you know, all of that. It's only on a network for them to get their, you know, first run and rerun value out of it. And sometime down the lane when they do the, you know, 50 years of UPN special, they can haul it out and throw it up on their, <laughs> on their greatest hits board or something. But, um, uh, like CBS does with I Love Lucy, although I Love Lucy was a, you know, Desi Lucia kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, and, and as the third season went along and it got into the fourth season, we may get to that. That's what, so that's a distinction between the network Paramount UPN and the studio Paramount TV. So, yeah. So second season ends. And the other thing was UPN had started off at the same time as, um, as the WB, right? The, the little upstart networks. What Fox was in the 80s, now they're becoming the fifth and sixth networks. And they're both kind of like the little bitty you know, joke guys out of the gate. But what was interesting was WB got solidified and actually found themselves a theme and a mood out of the gate. And UPN, I think everybody would understand now, kind of stumbled around and went in circles with sit really bad sitcoms and some dramas <laughs> that were good well. but just suffered. From, you know. Well, UPN launched with Star Trek Voyager and Platypus Man, so <laughs> clearly there was no great theme being developed there that was going to marry those two together, unless yeah. Neelix was related to Platypus Man. Now, that's a possibility. No. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Some, they had some good uh, adventure shows. Um, 
there was one about the guy that could that launched in little time capsule and would go back in time. I forget the name of it, but would go back in time, whatever. There was a there was a one hour show called Marker, and it was like the big angst of Gates McFadden when they were shooting the the um, oh that's right yeah. when they were shooting the finale of TNG in '94 and and UPN mm-hmm. was going to launch the next year was Marker had been picked. And it was like some Hawaiian, you know private eye show and she was the boss of the person that put him on his missions or something and you know that last everything on upn lasted a year but the star treks so uh if if even a year but um seven days i think was the name of that uh or maybe not anyway i remember roxanne dawson guest starred on seven days once as a navy commander anyway um so yeah, Star Trek was the proud flagship and the, the you know of UPN, but that just didn't mean a whole hell of a lot. It was the highest rated show on UPN all through Voyager and into Enterprise, but it didn't mean a whole hell of a lot. But the worst thing about the whole situation affecting this was the administration of UPN was really, really, I can say this now, really rinky dink wannabe <laughs> studio people, <laughs> network people. They were like yeah. network, you know, suit wannabes. We the uh-huh. people loved to, do, you know, oh, the suits in New York did this, the suits in L, you know, at NBC or CBS or whatever, and Fox. But the guys that were running UPN were just really, and gals were really not up to par, and they kind of ran in circles. And we've been talking about, it. you know, there wasn't a coherent strategy, marketing, and all this stuff. And but the whole time. Star Trek was like the golden calf. It's like whatever they did, Star Trek was untouchable. And that went through Voyager and then Enterprise launched and it was that way. But like the – I think the second season of Enterprise, basically everything came in – You know, all the chips came due at the end of the second season of Enterprise. All of a sudden, there were two different administrations of UPN in that time through Voyager and, and Enterprise's launch. And all of a sudden, it was not the little rinky-dinky people running UPN. All of a sudden, UPN got put under Les Moonves, the head honcho of CBS, the master TV network deal maker, and spread out into a lot of other media now. And who was a pretty smart, savvy guy and kind of looked at this thing, and he was not all caught up in the goldenness of the 90s and the aughts. And he's like, you guys aren't paying your own way. Why are we treating you guys so special when you're not making the cut on your ratings, you know, and have no hope to, it looks like. So he, you know, the end of the second season of Enterprise, after they'd had some really especially thin shows and lost a lot of the first year audience, um, the, 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 the riot act that got read to Rick and Brandon basically was you guys are, you know, you got to do something, you're out of here. So the whole Zindi arc was Rick and Brandon's reaction to, okay, we got to dig in. We got to ramp things up. We got to blow our audience out of the water. We got to get people back watching. We got to get all the old Trek people back watching. We got to attract new audience in. They were really put on the carpet. And so that's where, that's the genesis of why the hell the Zindi year came about as it did. And I think anybody watching the shows can compare that to the second season. And there's obviously, it's not just explosions and effects, there's a lot more concentrated storytelling they did take the characters to new places they did rough up archer you know the kindergarten years are over for the little nx01 you know and they and they even made that a theme within the theme that was even a meta theme of you know you know you guys you take your silly little earth humanity and your little earth morality you won't last a second in here you know and then they brought that back around Mm -hmm. so that's the you know that was the gauntlet thrown down the zindi arc though was how Rick and Brandon responded to it. And how did you feel about that? Because, so my take on the Zindi arc 
is when it first aired and I'm watching it week to week, I wasn't a big fan of it because I felt like it wasn't quite Star Trek. It didn't really feel right to me. Now, these days, when we have access uh, now to the Blu-rays from this week, but before that, the DVDs and, of course, Netflix, and if I sit down and I watch it four, five, six, seven episodes a day, just go through the season really quickly, it actually works pretty well as a story. And I also think that it's true in it's true to Star Trek in that it puts the characters in situations where they have to address issues that we have to grapple with as people somewhat in the way that the original series would and and certainly the next generation did and Deep Space Nine did. And in that sense, putting, it's very true Putting to people Trek. to the test, putting putting the Starfleet people through the Dominion War, putting Voyager through being cut off from home in a hostile space, you know, but, those kind but of But not tests. only that, but addressing, like when, the part where Archer is going to to airlock, well, not airlock, he's <laughs> going to torture this alien, put it in you know, a decompression right. chamber. I guess right, it is right. in an airlock, but he's going to decompress it. And I mean, that kind of thing, and that's, you know, where do you fall on that morally if you're put in that situation? And so I think those are good questions, especially the kind of questions mm-hmm. that DS9 asked. However, the Zindi were in the 22nd century and we're dealing with this alien race that we've never, ever heard of before mm-hmm. within Star Trek in a series that's supposed to be a prequel to the original series. And that just kind of left you feeling at the time anyway, like they've just gone off in some strange direction. And my my take on it for a long time was that it was a ratings gimmick just to try to boost the ratings. I don't feel so strongly like that today, but I did at the time. How did you feel about it? Well, internally, I mean, internally, uh, you know, I did know, I mean, all that, all that background I was giving you a minute ago, that wasn't, you mm-hmm. know, that wasn't plastered everywhere. There weren't even stories in Variety and Hollywood Reporters saying, you know, Enterprise on the ropes, you know, producers respond only way they know how. I mean, that wasn't that wasn't a meme. It was just like, right. wow, look at this. We're going to ramp up Enterprise and it's going to be cool. Yeah. And, you know, and pundits would say, hmm, well, obviously they're trying to get their ratings up. But the, you know, the uh, ticking clock that had, they'd been given wasn't part of the, the story. So fans are just sitting there going, right. oh, okay. But yeah, there was, there was a fandom divided going, wow, this is really ginned up. It's really uh, exciting. They've really taken it up, you know, not just a notch. They've gone up, you know, five, six notches, a, a plethora of notches. And so, yeah. And and if you watch the first, it starts off with a lot of fanfare and it's really kind of uh, soft at first. And you can tell they're kind of finding their way. And there's even some stories which are good, you know. And it doesn't really get tight until really kind of midway kicks in with the the real hardcore plot of the Zindi and the and the intrigue going on and the in the fact factions and how the mm-hmm. Zindi are a divided you know front. And it looks that way because that's exactly what it was. Rick and Brandon, if you re- go back and read the interviews from the time, Rick and Brandon are talking about yeah we're going to do this. Uh, I mean I remember the 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 TCA the only time I went to TCA the television critics tours was during the years when we were really ramped up in the end of Voyager and Enterprise. And I would go on the UPN nights and um, the mainstream media press would be questioning, you know, the cast and the producers. And it was a chance for me to jump in and be (laughs) hyper-focused more than what those guys could do. But they, you know, Rick and Brandon would admit that, they wouldn't admit, they would kind of, not hedge even, they would be honest and say, 
Well, we're going to do this at least for a while because it was a big experiment. The other thing about this, we talk about the Zindi arc. You know, DS9 had done the little experimental at a most 10 shows. So the, 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 you know, and this is pre-lost, <laughs> you know, we're talking TV 2003, which seems like an eternity ago now in some ways. Mm-hmm. And the whole concept of a season long arc like that, just stuck in the middle of an existing show was kind of radical. Like what would our fans say? Would we bring more people in when we run people off? Will it become a hit? Will it become a huge failure? Will we know it's a, fa- if it's a failure, will we know it's a failure soon enough that we pull out of this spiral and we go back to what something else or do, can we course correct it and go back to you know so as they're launching the season they're they're not trying to hedge but they're trying to hit i mean they're trying to be realistic and say yes we're going to stick with this for, we'll see how this goes and but i don't mean sound panic they can sound honest and and sound like they're being upfront guys and say uh, you know which is funny to do it at the upfronts <laughs> for the tv talk people but say but you know say yeah we're going to go here and somebody would say what well, are you going to spend the whole season in this and they would say well we'll see how it goes and you know and kudos to them for kind of being honest and it took four or five or six shows to say to figure out a okay this is working now b let's just you know tighten it up a little bit and get these details worked out but that's the thing that the thing i hate the thing i would hold against them just as a tv running is they would start these ideas, kind of like the temporal Cold War when they launched the show. <laughs> they would start these things and not have an end game, you know, yeah. in sight. And it may be one thing for Michael Piller to have written Best of Both Worlds and not how not know how it was going to end when he started writing it. But as TV has evolved to start off on a show and not know what these major things are going to be when you get into them, it's just like, it's like, how would you? Why would you put yourself in that box now? And yeah. you know, they're they're doing things on the run, but now it's just these people launch these heavily heavily serialized shows. Of course, I know all the Lost fans are over screaming. They didn't do Lost that way either, but you know, it's it's well, just amazing to think, think that it it's shows. like, well, let's see how this goes, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, it shows. Let's just see how this goes. So, yes, it did get pinned down and and uh, it took off. But that's that was the reality of life. In fact, they got into this. You know, second season even. It wasn't a true cliffhanger, but uh, the Expanse, you know, the the last season, they were launching off to go into this, and they had only vague. They would talk about the Delphic Expanse and you know the thermobaric clouds, and uh, I'm trying to remember if they even mentioned the Zindi by name. They had the guy in the capsule, and uh, which later on they had to kind of figure out where. The, I mean, they they designed that that uh, you know corpse before they even knew what they were doing the next year. <laughs> So, you know, there were a lot of things they were they were trying to play up. You know, that's why part of that is the fight with the Klingon on the way there. It's like, well, we don't right. know all the details of what we're getting into yet, so we'll throw some stuff here along the way to be dramatic. So, yeah. I, you know, that's as you're asking me what my memory of that was, it was kind of like we're dancing as fast as we can to get to this thing that's going to save our lives, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, of the series and uh saves our life save our life as a show and we're we're going to throw everything you know at the wall and see what sticks in a way until we get it figured yeah. out but we've got to do it right now and we've got to set it up well you talk about hedging a little bit and i mean even the writers say that they they were asked you know to keep developing other stories beyond this in case we decide that this whole zindi mm-hmm. thing doesn't mm-hmm. work out and mm-hmm. we need to go in some other direction and and, and that's good. And they do throw in standalones within the season. In, in fact, you know, Twilight is in here, which I think is one of the best episodes of Enterprise. Uh, yes. One of the great Star Trek episodes. And that's in the middle of this. And it does tie, you know, just kind of loosely into it because this is why 
Archer's in that situation in the first place. But, you know, for the most part, it's a, it's a nice story about Archer and Paul. And um, then you've got North Star, which is very much a, t- a TOS episode thrown in the middle of Enterprise. I, I have real fond memory of North Star because David Goodman, you know, David Goodman, who's gone back to animation now and family guy, and he had a pilot, I guess the show didn't work out, uh, called Murder Squad. But, and, you know, David Goodman just did the um, Federation, the first 150 years book last year. Uh, is a really good guy. He came up through comedy. Uh, after the first year, uh, one of the reactions uh, after the first season of Enterprise, one of the reactions to the show was Brandon looking around. David had just written the the Trek parody episode of Futurama, where no fan oh, has yeah. gone before, mm-hmm. and he was obviously a fan. But he he wrote comedy. He was writing in in you know half hour animated comedy, and Brandon saw him. And hired him on staff at Enterprise just to bring some comedy elements into the show. And the first couple of scripts, he wound up just being, you know, sucked into regular formats. But one of the things totally out of the realm of comedy and animation was he'd always wanted to do a Western. He he wanted to do a um, a Spectre of the Gun or a um, – I've gone blank on the TNG. You know, shame on me. The you know, Sheriff Wharf. Oh, A Fistful of Datas. Yeah, fist, yeah. Uh, name of my column in the magazine. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Fistful of Datas. Uh, he really wanted to find a way to do a Western, and he had the whole, you know, the whole scheme of it was aliens that had, you know, it was the 37s gone back to the <laughs> Yeah. Instead of pre-World War II uh, Americana, it's uh Well, he Wild compares North Star so, a lot to a piece of the action as well. Where it's this kind of Earth society that kind of got transplanted somehow, and it's kind of a mirror. Oh yeah, I was going to say, wow, it's that's an interesting comparison. uh, Piece of action North Star. It's sort of like because Spectre of the Gun was not, you know, an Earth society that had been transplanted. That was kind of a different thing. Right, right. I was totally purely talking about the Western, you know. Yeah, that's the Western Western. element. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is that, like, typically, whenever I've thought of North Star, I do think of Spectre of the Gun. It's like Enterprise is doing their Spectre of the Gun. That's the Mm -hmm. first thought that comes to my mind as well. But if you think about the actual, and and this is what uh, David has said about it in interviews on the Blu-rays, in fact, that... It's a lot more like uh, like Brad and Circus's a piece of the action, that kind of thing, where there's kind of a parallel society that's been transplanted somehow, and then we come across them. And yeah. It's very TOS. Here Except that Bread and Circus's and Return of the Archons, where uh, 60s, we don't have a budget for alien sci-fi, and you come up with Hodgkin's parallel planet developed, whereas North Star was they were abducted. I mean, it, they had tied right. down the, uh, we can't keep having, you know, human aliens. Which is that's crazy, yeah. Yeah, which is more like the 37s, which you mentioned, right? Yes, it, yeah, yeah. They've been it, abducted. That's where yeah. it were. Except that 37s yeah. was, they were just abducted, whereas North Star is interesting where they overthrew their alien masters and had, you know, mm-hmm. had turned the tables on them, which was kind of an interesting, a totally interesting take. So, yeah, uh, yeah and North Star comes along. Um, this was November of three, so uh, that was the year after, the year after Firefly was out and canceled. Yeah, anyway. They weren't exactly writing a fad since the show was canceled, but uh, but no, but your 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 general idea, your your theme here about these standout shows that the, the Zindi get mentioned in passing, like uh, you know, oh yes, we you know, or a Captain's Log was while we're keeping an eye out mm-hmm. for it's kind of like DS Nine would do in the middle of Dominion War. They found ways to stick yeah. in shows that weren't heavy war shows when it, they weren't in the middle of one of the intense art direct arcs. Hey, they even played baseball in the middle of a war, so. Yeah, <laughs> you can throw anything in there. <laughs> well, they did in World War Two, 
and and you know the Dominion War is modeled after World War Two, so they had to play baseball. Uh, but you know, and then uh, and similitude, similitude was the episode that won Manny Cotto, basically yeah. made him the golden boy to come in and be you know. Basically, as this ep- as this season went along, and the ratings went up, but they didn't skyrocket. And UPN was, if you want to jump to this, UPN was going to say, "Okay, you guys had your year. Uh, sorry, no go. I, you know, I'm sorry that UPN is on channel 83 in Poughkeepsie, <laughs> and the yeah. you know Poughkeepsie Pirates uh, minor league basketball team has bumped your episode showing to two in the morning on Thursdays. But tough luck. Uh, and it was Paramount." TV studio who would own this thing for in perpetuity, who had the most to gain long term. You know, the old meme about you need 100 episodes to syndicate or do something with, you know, do a package deal of things. Uh, they were looking for 100 episodes in three seasons, didn't get it, which makes the yeah. whole thing of the original series all the more amazing that they only had three seasons out there and did the, pa- did the syndication package. But Paramount TV studio stepped in to UPN and said, okay, okay, okay. We'll ante up more of the budget. You guys drop your budget. We'll cut the overall. You know, each episode will be done for less, uh, and they cut costs by going digital this year and had you know had the Sony sponsorship. That was a big little PR thing they got to do, and they're in the credits for that last year, but for the camera work. And um, uh, so UPN was paying more or paying less. The network Paramount TV was paying more for their investment, knowing they would have it longer term. And everybody had one last gasp at thinking maybe we can really do some insane things and, and really skyrocket the ratings up. And part of that whole deal was Rick and Brandon stand down and let somebody else show run. Basically it was what it was. And so mm-hmm. they had really gotten um they had really, you know, been impressed with in the middle of this crazy Zindi arc, here's this guy shows up Manny, uh, and writes a show like Similitude, which just Yeah. No matter what show you're a fan of uh, similitude still will knock your socks off. And you don't have to know all yeah, that much background about the show or even the Zindi arc to, to, right. to fall into it. That's the great thing about it, right? I mean, it, it does tie into the Zindi arc, and that's one reason why it's important that Trip lives, because they need him to complete the mission. But but the episode itself is just, you don't need to know the Zindi mm-hmm. war arc for that or or anything. It is a great episode. Well, similitude's a lot about that. I mean, the, it's the human... The human adventure is just beginning. It's the emotions and the and the uh, you know laid raw of this weird situation. But it's something that yeah. you after it's established, you know, that he's been, you know, he's been basically been been uh, you know cloned as a youth, basically. That um, while his real person is laying there dying or in coma or whatever, and um, that's something that after you get over the hump, the first five minutes, you can get into it, and people understand yeah. how it has wrenched everything else around from to Paul to everybody else. So, yeah, yeah. he earned his stripes on that one. So in the middle of this Zindi arc is where, you know, they do bring in Manny Koto. And the people who brought us season four, I think, like you're saying, really cut their teeth here in the middle of of this Zindi arc, at least on Enterprise, maybe not in terms of their career, but in terms of... Well, Mike Sussman was still there. Mike had been one that had been bopping along. And interestingly, and I kind of feel bad for this, in the mix of people and all that, Chris Black had been there since midway through first season. Chris Black had had, uh, jumped in and done some great shows. Chris Black, like Manny, like Mike Sussman, was an original... It's interesting how Next Generation started, and the thing around the lot was, if you were a fan... 
You were under <laughs> because Rick and all of his people were TV people, and they didn't get yeah. this whole Gene and you know Susan Sackett and Richard Arnold and Gene's people from the old series. Very quickly, there became this kind of dichotomy, but but not so much if you were a Gene person, but if you were an, an old fan or not. And it was like, well, there's leaks coming out and things are disappearing. And if, if you were on the show and it was like let out that you were a fan, then you were like always under suspicion that you've either taken something or you've leaked something. <laughs> and, you know, forget the fact that scripts and, you know, there were hundreds of people on the lot every day who had access to stages. And, and anytime you hired a vendor to make a prop or do a special effects sequence or do a costume or come sweep the floor, you know, uh, or sell me a taco in the middle of the day. <laughs> there are tons of ways for things to get out. But the poor people on staff, if it happened to slip out that you'd been a fan. But that's where the world was because the original, you know, that was the 80s. And I'm sorry, the geeks had not won the revolution yet. By the time we get to Voyager and into Enterprise, everybody working on the show is, is if they haven't been an original series fan, they got it. So that whole mission of Enterprise being launched to lead into original series was a lot easier in many ways than it was it would have been 10 years earlier. And the, that whole vibe about mistrusting – now it was like, oh, we need original series people to be here to – you know, to we're supposed to lead into that, so that's what we need. So you've got these writers coming along that they don't have to be schooled. They're, they're bringing it on their own. You know, They're yeah. slipping little things in. And so it's like, you know, it's like Rick and, and Brandon and then Rick ultimately like it's like, no, no, let's not get too fanboy here. Let's not get too fanboy. Here. I think some of those things should have been allowed through <laughs> and they never stopped, you know, whether it was writing or art department or visual effects or what or makeup or whatever. They were throwing a lot of stuff in that still got tamped down and which I think was a huge mistake. But that's hindsight. So uh, all this to say that. People on staff before Manny got the keys to the car for the fourth season. There had been lots of people that had wanted to push that kind of thing along the way. Little little incidental stories and in, also in a big way. And Chris Black was one who was not only a big original series fan and knew his stuff too. He was really interested. He'd always wanted to develop the Denobulans and Phlox's background. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he had kind of thought he was going to be in a position to, you know – basically be higher up the you know I, I think he was disappointed when Manny got handed the keys to the to the car midway yeah. through. So he um he uh decided not to hang around for the last year. Did did a great has lots of good episodes and I love him to pieces and he's very proud of all the work he did. But uh Manny was an interesting bird. He came in and like um he just went in his – I mean I didn't see him for the first few months. I didn't bug people until the end of the year anyway, even though a lot of the old-timers – and I just tried not to bother people unless there's something very topical on time, on deadline I had to do for for my column or for the magazine. And um, Manny was one that I, I didn't even see like in the hall. Manny like basically lived in his office that first half season, and he was very intense. And he, he was reminded me a little bit of Gene Kuhn, the way Gene Kuhn would crank out stories quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's what Manny mm -hmm. had a talent for doing too. So between the, the actual output and the way he worked, uh, like Jesus Christ, if anybody's going to save this show, it might be him. Uh, that, that all kind of, that, that's a nugget I wanted to throw out there. Aside from what you see on screen, that was going on kind of behind the scenes too. Yeah. You know, talking about people who know the original series, 
I'm curious your thoughts on this because when we look at, and not to get too much into season four here, because again, we're going to, you know, really focusing on season three today, but season three, as I mentioned earlier with the Zindi and something we've never seen before in Star Trek is so far away from Star Trek that we know. And if you think about the show leading towards the original series, mm-hmm. you think about what they could have done there. You know, they could have done the Romulan War. And I think that's actually what I think Mike Sussman says on in his interview on the Blu-rays is that no offense to the Zindi, but they're not the Romulans. You know, if you, if you were going to do this arc, it should have been Romulans instead of Zindi. But my, my question is, that was just I a think bridge that, too far for, for yeah, you know, Rick and Brandon to make that leap. Yeah. Right. To make that, but you know, out of their heart of hearts. Right. But my question is a balance. I think when, one criticism I have of the fourth season, and it's a small criticism because overall I think it's great. There are moments in the fourth season where I feel like it goes a little bit too much fanboy. Uh-huh. And and I'm wondering if that if in the fourth season everyone in the writer's room is too much inside I have your answer. being TOS fans. I have your answer. No, I ask Manny that. You know, here's the thing. They came out of the Zindi arc with the whole time thing and they wound up with the alien Nazis, you know, and the whole, that whole thing. And there was a big, and and in the middle of, okay, here's where we've left it. And here's the keys, Manny. Now take it and run. And why don't we do, you know, Rick's original idea was to do like a six show arc getting out of the Nazi alternate future. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a lot. I mean, I'm thinking about that story. And wow, six episodes of that. (laughs) Pushed back on that. Yeah. And said, (laughs) you know, it's like, I think we've had, yeah, it's like, they were, a a lot of people were so itching to exactly what you just said. The the good of it was there were so many people, fans and people who worked on the series, who thought that, oh, I don't know, Enterprise would show you a path toward Kirk a century later and the world we knew, you know. That the, the whole side issue of how do you juggle 60s production art being later than the te- production technology and art design we can do now? How do right. you juggle that? That whole debate was aside. But that aside, people saying how are we going to lead into the you know the conceptual the the path we lay down for that and how we can have fun right. with it uh, had been wondering where that was all along and what would Enterprise have been like had that been you know more from the very beginning. So. On one hand, yeah, that coming out of the third season into fourth, it made a big push that way. And then a lot of people would say just what you said. Jesus Christ, did every single damn episode have to be a tie-in to the original series or a prequel to the original series? And not all of them actually were, but yeah. And Manny's answer to that is, after you hear the story about how Rick wanted to go six episodes, you know, and Manny talked him down into just one or two, a two-parter to open. Two-parter, yeah. By then, the old thing about 26 hours had been cut down to 22. Mm-hmm. The modern TV series had finally, you know, they, were, they weren't they were syndicated. Somebody well, finally Scott woke Bacula up and really, really that. pushed for that 22. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's where, you yeah. know, you hear the guys talk, the writers talk about Jesus Christ. No wonder we had floor clinkers a year, at least, on Next Gen and DS9. Because yeah. can we take those away and then we'll have perfect seasons <laughs> or something, you know? So... The last year or two were going to just be 22 hours. So here's Manny doing the math and goes, okay, well, I talked him down from six to two. So I've got 22 slots. This show, unless we blow the roof off the ratings, this is our last year. I wish it's not. Let's keep planning. 
Let's do our damnedest to get the numbers up there and make UPN beg to have us back. <laughs> but in case the odds don't go that way, I got 22 hours to do the last Star Trek anybody's going to see for a while on TV. And I've already lost two to wrap up this crazy, you know, alien Nazi thing. Manny's thing was, that leaves me 20 slots. If I had more than – and he said it later on. If I would had more than 20 hours, of course we wouldn't have done a TOS lead-in. He's like, but for the good of the show and the good of Star Trek, I had 20 things to get stuff done that I thought needed to get done, one yeah. of which was fixing the Vulcans, quote-unquote, and coming up with the backstory. You know, one of the things – in fact, he had a cork board where they had you know five-by-seven cards, and they had like all the major ideas he wanted to get to in the year. I think this has become kind of a famous thing now. And they got everything done. At the end of the year, he had still – he showed me. I've got pictures. He, um, he had two cards still left pinned up on the board, uh, Starbase 1 and Colonel Green. And Colonel Green kind of wound up being half-assed into Terraform. Kind of got in there. Yeah, kind of got bit. in there. He's, yeah. Not the full bore. Of, you know, they wanted Colonel Green to be the actual villain of Terra Prime and all that. But, mm-hmm. you know, fixing the cl- – finally answering the, cl- the the convoluted Klingon Ridge forehead, you know, smoothies versus bumpies thing. Yeah. So they had that laundry list of stuff. He had 20 hours to do it, and uh, that's it. And he's like, I know people say, why did we cram it in? It's like – I was running out of time. I wanted to get this stuff done. I wouldn't have picked it that way any other way, but that was what I was handed, and that's what, you know, that's what yeah. I thought I had to do. That was the hand you I was see that. So, so yeah. But no, I mean, he was very conscious of that feeling, and if he wasn't, I I threw it at him at the end of the year. <laughs> and really, he only had nineteen hours because another one is taken up by these are the voyages. Well, at the and no one quite knew that <laughs> till it got toward the end of the year. Right. <laughs> till you got there, so yeah. Well, so let's take that backwards back into season three. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about is whether, and and I already mentioned the Romulan War, which again, Mike Sussman mentioned as well. How do you feel? Okay, so leading into, uh, during season three, when there was the talk that, you know, Enterprise might get the axe and fans were really kind of making some noise trying to save Enterprise uh, I was doing that too because at the time I was doing a project, a marketing project, and and the project was it was a caper, it was a mystery game, and you had to we were putting clues in print ads in magazines, and then you had to go to this game website and you had to look for these clues in these articles. And I was writing a fake newspaper, and the fake newspaper had some articles about my client's products. And it was also mixed with lots of creative writing, just kind of humorous, kind of like the onion before the onion was, was really mm-hmm. so much of a thing. And wow, I was putting way articles back then? in there. Way back then, yes. <laughs> Uncle Chris. I was, okay. <laughs> right. I was putting anyway, I was putting I put an article in there, I remember, Save Enterprise. And I was actually trying to get people as they're playing that game to also go uh-huh. make some noise to save Enterprise. And so then we did get season four, but then when season four was going and you know mm-hmm. here we are again we're probably going to get canceled and then i think it was pretty much clear that we were uh but um so i remember you know what was going on there but do you feel like in season three if they had gone either the romulan war instead of the zindi war or if they had pulled more of the season four type tos content into season three do you think it would have made a difference? Do you think that the series would have been saved or would we have gotten the same result of cancellation after season four? Uh, well, in a word, 
F yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that I'm it would have been work. saved, and I don't know if I don't know if if it would have been enough to save the show, but considering that it would have, you know, I don't know if it would have saved the show, but I know that's what I would have. Wanted. I mean, it it dawned on me. We started talking about doing this episode tonight, and it dawned on me in the last week or so that uh, at least the characters before and after are Archie or Archie. <laughs> Archie, Archie and Jughead, and Veronica and Betty, and yeah, it's oh, this that's was a why. Pre- <laughs> oh, that Archie! Okay. Come on, let's go to the Archie show. Um, everybody's here. Uh, it's it's the same character, so it binds in. But it don it, yeah. you know it occurred to me that the Zindi are so discombobulated and disconnected from anything else in Trek in the Trek canon in Trek universe. They're this anomaly year. We're human beings. We can be the biggest fans of something in the world. And if, you know, it's, it's, you can want to want something, but that's different than just being, you know, falling in love with it. And, and that's the way, you know, if you honestly don't connect your, your touch points, if you don't have an emotional investment, if it doesn't connect to anything you've already known, if you're on that, you know, if you're inventing the Sona and, and, uh, and uh, Baku, Baku, you know, yeah. out of whole cloth. If you're having to do something out of whole cloth for something all new, and it's supposed to be such a huge investment for the characters, and the audience is kind of dragging along behind, and it can be exciting, but you're just you got you're talking about Star Trek for God's sake. You're talking about this thing of some prior history and all the history to come, and somehow you're not tying into that, but you've gone this this lone route over here. Which I'm sure they did that just so they would think they had total freedom and to you know be as crazy as they wanted to with it. When you abandon that, then yeah, you are obviously giving up on some of the potential that. But as human beings, as an audience, we're not going to be as emotionally invested in it. And it dawned on me, well, duh, that's exactly what's going on with the JJ movies. Unless right. you're the the huge bunch of people who are out there who this it, you know they're the kids or the turned mundane adults or whatever, and it's their first exposure to Star Trek at all, and they're caught up and they go and suck up on you know everything else, the original series and next gen and all the rest. But for a lot of people, there are a lot of people who don't want to be JJ haters. They're like, well, I really, you know, I really. There are a lot of people that way, kind of like about the motion picture at first. It's like, well, I really wanted to be more excited. I've been waiting ten years for it, and I really wanted to be more excited yeah. about it. But I can't be, you know, I can't make up my emotions. I can't fake this. Yeah. And and that's the way a lot of people were at the Zindi. And it was cool to see the CGI aliens mixed in, you know, and and some of the things they did, and some of the standalone episodes. But at the end of it, you were just kind of go, you know, and then when it got into the next season and it didn't tie into anything, uh, they did have that one little throwback moment. I forget the episode, but they went back and used a little pickup of a Zindi thing. But, um, you know, when it didn't tie into anything and now you stand back and you go, well, that was that was the thing that was going to save the show. It's, you know, it's a it's a matter of being in the middle of the forest and not seeing the trees or being in the valley and not seeing, you know, the big picture. It's the choices they made to go there and, and yeah. you know, but no, I don't think it was the strongest way they could have gone. Do you think that this is something that Jolene says in her interviews on the Blu-rays, that if we had been allowed to go further, we wouldn't be sitting here having this discussion about the decisions that we made. Do Do you think that if they had gone seven seasons and they had had those three additional seasons 
to tie what happened with the Zindi in over time so that it felt like of course maybe it does tie in then we would we would view the Zindi art differently of course just like in the fourth season they were able to quote unquote fix the Vulcans and make sense out of that and yeah. not that it was going to you know sink the franchise but I mean some of the little touches they were able to do in the fourth season they were able you know it was cool to bring um the you know we even it's, we got to finally quit saying you know the con superman and the eugenic superman we finally just have this term now the augments i even have to remember yeah. to to use the damn term it's like finally we got it <laughs> hey guys it's like it's like well, it was you know we had d7 for 20 years before it got retconned into trials and tribulations but you know here's augment so you had you had a cool thing of bringing the eugenics wars and all that and you know and get besides having brent and, and the sung you know, it was a turnabout. You had it looking forward, looking back there in mm-hmm. this one try. But yeah, fixing the Vulcans and then and then finally laying the groundwork of you know the te- finally getting the Tellarites in and having them cast right. They weren't skinny slave owners. They were the fat little you know porcine guys. You feel very strongly about the Tellarites, don't you, Larry? <sighs> yes. <laughs> I was just like we're doing a prequel show and uh, and you know the 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 guys in Bounty. Were a total last minute ad. That was Mike. I found out that Mike Sussman was a fellow Tellarite fan because the Tellarites, being the two guys, the two the two uh, guest roles in Bounty at the end of second mm-hmm. season, was a total last minute um, decision. Mike just said, "Hey, can we make these guys Tellarites?" And they're like, "Okay," which is why they didn't have cloven hands. Mike Westmore was make, working on a cloven hand, like you know, original series. Hey, they didn't have much money, but at least their Tellarites had actual. Pig's hooves, pig's feet. Mm-hmm. They weren't pickled, but you know. Um, <laughs> and and the and he not, was yeah, working not till the Andorians get a hold of that's them. That's full. Yeah, <laughs> uh, brown skins. But wait, that would <laughs> what you call it. pink skins or anyway, um, pork skins. Pork skins. That's, that's what there we used to eat when when I lived in Alabama when I was growing pork up. Rinds. Pork skins. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they they didn't get to have pork uh, hands because they'd already done the control panels for the. You know, guest role of the week ship, yeah. and somebody said, "You know, we can't really have these big clunky cloven hands on these little tiny human-looking buttons." So they, re, you know, re, regretfully went with just kept the the actors in humanish hands. I think he tried yeah. to give them a dew claw or something, and um, so you know, the they at least got them scaled right, short and fat and dumpy, but uh, they still kept it their their nimble fingers. By the yeah. time we got to see, but at least we got them. At least they made sense, and at least they said, you know, the Tellarites debating, and and you actually mm-hmm. saw the picture with Vulcans. You know that that one scene at the end of um in the in the trilogy where you've got a, a Tellarite, an Andorian, a human, and a Vulcan standing there together, and it's like, oh, because so much of that stuff had never been canon. You know, some of the beloved stuff that st- goes back to the, the Franz Joseph Schnabel's original tech manual with the original Federation founders. None of that stuff had been put down in canon. It was just all beloved fan speak, and but it lingered it out as, there. Yeah, and, but we you know, took it and then as it canon finally almost, got it. Well, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like like yesteryear on the animates when the animates were out in the wilderness is not being canon. Yeah. But it was fine to finally see that stuff on film, and I know that's fourth season, but so um, I figured well, we you, launched us down this road. But yeah, I did launch us down this road. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> Oh, you mentioned earlier okay. another no, interesting point was you said there's a difference between you know wanting to watch something and falling in love with it and mm-hmm. I think that uh, like you said with the Zindi with the CGI and the action of, of the season and all it is something where Star Trek fans we want to watch it and 
you know, if we're available at that time, and of course that was, you know, d- digital recorders were starting to be around. Of course you had your, your VCRs at that time, but you could record it and watch it if you wanted. But I think for a lot of people, enterprise became, if I'm around and it's on, I'd like to watch it. But if I miss it, eh, it's not that big of a deal. But if it had been the Romulan War, I think that most Star Trek fans would have said, I have to see these episodes. Oh my God, of course they were. The the weird thing about, here's a couple other things. I think the weird thing about Enterprise, well, two or three things, and one of these is courtesy Doug Drexler recently, because you know there's been a, not a Netflix campaign, but there's been a Facebook campaign to say to Netflix, hey, while you're trying to do original programming, how about do a season five of of Enterprise, right. that cast would come back. You can build a few sets. You can green screen some other things. It would be awesome, uh, and it would have a built-in startup following. It would be a you know, short of, you know, no disrespect meant, but it would be a cheap way to get a Star Trek on your network real fast. You know, it's a big if if CBS would agree to it. But they want to call it Star Trek Ship of Cards, right? I don't know <laughs> if I like the name. Yeah, they want to call it Arrested Starfleet. <laughs> yeah, or something. I don't know. Maybe something better than that. But uh, so so in talking about that, um, Doug had an interesting point that I had on my had on my, had on my Truckland blog uh, in an interview we did, which was 2005. On one hand, to me, was just the other day, but it's been an eternity <laughs> in technology and pop culture. And the JJ movie's effect on bringing in new fans and just new fans coming in, period. I've had several fans tell me, not indignantly, but tell me quite emphatically, no, I am not at my first convention because of the JJ movies. I'm here because I stumbled across the Netflix or I stumbled across the DVDs or my I finally let my friends talk me into watching a show of one of the series and I got into it. But um, Doug's point was that there are huge numbers of new fans watching Enterprise now who don't know they're supposed to hate it. Right. (laughs) Exactly. At the same time, I think Enterprise actually, as much as we talk about it didn't lead into the original series as much or as fast as directly as we would have liked or even did the the show an injustice by not going there as sooner and quicker and more defiantly, I think there was a lot of DS9 and Voyager fans who... That whole meme about you know the whole thing about Enterprise, the whole pre- the whole premise of it being a prequel about well Star Trek's supposed to go forward not go backwards and I would say well that's a it's stupid it's that's Star Trek it's on every week you know shut up guys and b it's all in the future what do you mean <laughs> yeah, you know and, right. and, and because I want corners of the timeline in, in the canon filled out and I also want in, yeah. other things you know I want the BC I want the Tomed incident I want April's era. I want lots of things filled in that aren't necessarily beyond beyond Cisco. But I think for all the DS9 and Voyager people who by then maybe in TNG who maybe tailed away, I think all those buried original series, a lot of original series people who drifted away over the flack of Next Gen not being Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, I think a lot of them were intrigued and came in and watched it. Or maybe at least mm-hmm. gave it a start watch and then maybe drifted away when the plots got thin in second season. Yeah. But I think there was a really interesting mix of people who were watching Enterprise. Um, 
And I that I remember at the time that kind of bearing out and thinking, well, this is interesting. I wish we could do some more, you know. But definitely now, there's a whole. I, I Doug hit it right on. There's a whole generation of people who are avidly snapping up everything Enterprise, eternally pissed that their favorite show got cut off after four years. And I wish I'd been right. around to vote and write my congressman back then. Yeah. And uh, you know, push for this fifth season, whether it's a pipe dream or whether there's anything to it or not. And uh, and like he said, they didn't they didn't get the memo they were supposed to hate the show like all the people on at the time. I think that's the key, you know. And yeah, we had Doug here on the show uh, back, I don't know, six months ago, one of our early episodes. And yeah, he was talking about that, that people don't know they're supposed to hate it. And I, and I meet a lot of Enterprise fans who they are Enterprise fans mm-hmm. more so than Star Trek fans. They just found this show and they love it. And I think the Zindi arc in th- season three works better for them because they're not viewing it as how does it fit into this grand Star Trek universe. They're not viewing it as this weird 5% out of this 100% pie. They're viewing it as one, one year out of four. They're viewing it as 24 hours of television. And, Mm -hmm. and, and like I said, if you watch it quickly through, and this is what I advise everyone to do with it, it, it is a pretty good piece of storytelling. So yeah, those people don't know they're not supposed to, to like it, (laughs) but but you know it's and and we do we just to put a, a, a you know across this t and dot this i it is amazing when we think of the zindi year the real zindi shows they're laying out all the clues at the beginning you know who what kind of race is Guinan? who we'll tell you in 7 years you know kind of a thing <laughs> those last 5 or 6 wrap ups are pretty tight they're as tight as the dominion war arc they just don't happen to yeah. be about anybody we care about <laughs> as adversaries, <laughs> but they are as tightly scripted and and plotted and acted as the you know the Dominion War type spirals yeah. on DS Nine, yeah. and it is amazing that there were some there's such a variety of of um you know of of shows through there. Well, you know one of my wacky weird favorites, and I want to go back and watch it again. Uh, well, aside from like Doctor's or- or Orders being a kind of a quirky show. And uh, Doctor's Orders always seeming to me just like one on Voyager where the Doctor's running around there. I, I just love Don oh, Billingsley, is. and I wish yeah. Chris had they'd gotten to do some Denobulus stuff. And the whole thing about where the – what happened to the Denobulans, why – you know, another another thing aside from the Zindi, the other big question of Enterprise is what have happened to the Denobulans and why have we never heard of them before? And don't give me this, well, it's the last show put together kind of thing. But uh, David Goodman in his book had an explanation of that the Romulan War – you know, kind of burned out the Denobulans and they just kind of went off on their own and didn't really get involved in galactic affairs after that. But Hatchery is such a wacky show with the eggs and Archer being Mother Hen and in the yeah. middle of all these other ones. And I had forgotten that until I just saw the Hatchery. And I just, and I remember how there were like no good pictures out of that. And then I finally stumbled across a cache of set decorator pictures and the eggs hanging in the the web baskets and things. And it was just, you know, Kind of an interesting thing that and the zombie Vulcans in um, uh, what is it uh, Impulse? They always talked about the the, the uh, Vulcan zombies and the Vulcan vampires show, and you know, yeah, kind of yeah. being a wacky thing. And then the the love story of you know Exile and uh, 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 Regine being kind of a weird little yeah a little story. And then as you said, Twilight. I'm just looking at some back of these. And then Carpenter Street trying to be their time travel, trying to be their future's end kind of feel. Right. And Leela yeah. Norser is always good. So anyway, but yeah, I've, the, the the variety of shows, when you stop and think about it, was a lot more than, okay, okay, this week, Zindi plot, Zindi plot, you know. They they managed to work some in um, 
despite that, and and hired Manny Cota because of his kind of quasi not Zindi show. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the impulse is one I think people remember more because of the zombies. But um, it's it's interesting that you mentioned Hatchery because I hadn't thought much about that episode until you mentioned it right here. And then I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, Archer was really <laughs> sitting those eggs, wasn't he? He was really concerned about that. It's almost it's like, like uh, let's let's try to do Extinction again, only do it a little um, a little more. <laughs> yeah, you know, let's, let's put Archer You're gonna through have... a weird... You're going to have an Extinction Marathon this weekend, aren't you, Larry? You're going to yeah, watch Extinction... Yeah, just... Two, three okay. times in a row. A see one if you show can, marathon. Yeah. See if you can get the acting down <laughs> as well. So Zootkalut Kadoodly or whatever. Yeah. Oh goodness. Well, uh so I guess th- those sound like your final thoughts on the season. No, actually I've got I've got forty seven more chapters in I can talk about, <laughs> Chris. I No, no, no. That's uh you know, I, I, I wish someday we were talking about this on the other side of the room. But I know a lot of people as as Here's an interesting thing. As Enterprise has picked up these post-hater generation fans, um, I, I also hear people gripe about why isn't there an Enterprise companion? And, um, you know, the world has changed a lot since 2005. So, you know, maybe we'll have one one day. But uh, these, are a lot of, these are a lot of the good themes to um, go through there. And, I, and I've got a lot of interviews and things. You know, as you know, I have a lot of interviews and things put back from back in the day. And... Uh, you know the, the just you know the writing staff had settled down by here, but the the revolving door of the first season where they're trying to find their way. You know the only thing that rivals is the first year of Next Generation, as far as trying to find something to settle down. And a lot of perfectly good, wonderful writers who went on and were good before and good after just didn't fit into what they were trying to do with the show at the beginning. And um, but the show it did find itself as a as a writing vehicle. It did find itself, and I guess we we beat all this to death about why things happened the way they did except that i know fans will go to their grave thinking why the hell did they cancel the show just as it was getting good you know and yeah. it was it was getting intense and, and making well, I, sense and meaningful i was disappointed in that because i feel like if you look at any star trek series most of the series do take <laughs> two three years before they settle well any tv show is like that right especially the next generation especially is like that but even if you look at you know my favorite series ds9 the first season of DS9 is not particularly good. It's, Second season, it starts getting better. By third season, it's really starting to pick up. And then the last four seasons are some of the best writing in television. And it's a shame that we well, you know that the downside of all the all the T and all the next all the spin-off shows, even Next Generation, even twenty years after the original series, all of them suffer from the fact that they aren't a successful franchise. And it's one thing to stake out this new territory of what you're going to do. Oh, let's have it be 80 years in the future. Oh, let's have it be darker, grittier. Oh, let's have it be lost in another part of the, you know, oh, let's have it be a sequel show. All of those may look good on paper, but it, you actually have to get in and, and do it. And and we talk about that and people go, why does it take a Star Trek show three years to get its legs? And especially the first year, it's hard to break free unless you're going to have separate producers on all of them. And this is all hindsight now. Maybe the next time around, who knows what the hell the TV landscape will look like, and who's running the show, and who's calling things, and you know. But the way it, that evolved was, it took that long for each show to find its own, you know, identity, despite the best of intentions. And yeah, next gen. I mean, DS9 comes off as TNG light at the beginning, and they go off on exploring missions, you know, and uh, and Voyager 
is running around with these shipboard dramas and and you know it's like it's the same only we've just got new aliens and they're different every week <laughs> you know right. kind of except for the Kazon who never went away for two years but um but still somehow we're moving so and yeah we're so, technologically and, and, inferior but could always keep up with Voyager right Right, just because they were so scattered. It's many of those damn sex. No, not sex. Sex. Yeah. Um, you know, once a Klingon junkyard dog, always a Klingon junkyard dog. But yeah, uh, yeah so all you know, all the shows. You know, it's and we sit here and we pick these apart. We look back at all of them in hindsight. But you know, everything is. Uh, you know, television is the fire in which we burn, or something. I mean, uh, <laughs> said producer Soren. <laughs> yeah, he's one of my favorite characters from Producerhood. Um, so, so, you know, but you had to go back and look at what what was the crucible of the time? What was the, you know, what was the air people were breathing? What was the situation in the States and America and the TV industry? And what was going on with the things that were buffeting TV and the Trek franchise and, you know, what was on Rick Berman's mind and, and the Blu-rays have been really good about letting him open up. I think some of the yeah. crap got off his shoulders. I was kind of, you know, gratified to see that. And it really is on one hand, it's neat just to see those interviews because it's not 20 and 30 years later, it's bang within, you know, spitting distance of the original events. Uh, but the other thing, it's the first – we're in the really the first wave here these last two, three, four years of Next Gen and especially these is that no one's got a job to protect. No one's – you know, there's no company line that we had while they were doing DVDs and documentaries you know, on Next Gen while Enterprise was still on when the when all this got started. That era of media happened and and people are free – you know, feeling free to – and you know, and Brandon's even on his big apology tour running around – yeah. You know, which is funny, and 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 it's even come back to the pendulum swing where the you know the enterprise non-haters are all going, no, no, Brandon, it's great, it's fine, don't say that. I mean, it's just, it's just wacky times we live in. But yeah. that's, you know, well, I'm kind of one of those people actually. I feel like Brandon apologizes too much. Like there are things that he says. I take all the blame for this thing that happened, and and I feel like it. You know, really, it, it was okay. It's you don't really need to apologize for that. So maybe I'm one of those fans, <laughs> right there. Oh, I'll let him. No, I I'll let him keep apologizing. <laughs> no, I think part of it was the. I think it was the. It was a collaborative, you know, chicken pot there. The the air everybody was breathing and the the mood of the time. And I didn't agree with it then, and I don't agree with it now. But given you know the the mix of people and cast of characters, I don't know. It's not, you know, if I had my if I had my future guy, um, um. God. Are you saying that you were future guy, Larry? Is that <laughs> what we were going to find out in season No, I five? wasn't future guy because no one would have listened to me if I had been future <laughs> guy and said, no, Kirk, McCoy, Spa, <laughs> Andorian, Stellarine. I mean, I was I, – I told this story before. I was so shocked when they brought the Andorians and I was like – Oh my God! You're really you're really going to admit that the original series happened? Okay, yay! And then when I heard they were trying the big RC con radio control antenna, I'm like, well, damn, here it goes. They'll screw up and they'll say, "See, this is what we get for trying to Andorians." It's like, no, you didn't have to do that. But you know, thankfully, it all worked great. And but I was just sitting there ahead of time when I heard this was happening, and I was like, okay, great. The the radio control antenna are going to be a bust, and they'll go, "See, we shouldn't have tried this. Last time we ever see those little blue buggers, you know, kind of a thing." Luckily, it turned out well, though. Luckily, it turned out well. Yeah. 
All right. Well, well, thanks, Larry, for taking some time out tonight to, to talk to me about season three. And Yeah. Uh, well, I was glad that. to correct all those wrong memes and myths there for you, Chris. I was glad <laughs> okay. to jump in and set the record straight there. Thanks for that. <laughs> and, and of course, being able to yell boomer Pardon. sooner at the beginning made it all worthwhile for That's you, right? The only reason I came on. Yep. <laughs> Well, Larry, before I let you go, um, what else do you have going on that you want to tell anyone about? And uh, where can people find you to to follow all the great things you have going on? Uh, Well, let's see. Out of the gate, the new thing that I started, which is kind of like a sidebar thing, except apparently I've gotten a good following for it, is my Trekline trunk, which is basically getting getting rid of some of my stuff, Uh, the the thing, not the information. A lot of... uh, blueprints and set plans and okudograms and draft scripts and 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 googie items uh promotional things and in-house stuff um go to my facebook page and uh, there's a twitter feed for trekland trunk and and most of it's ebay but i do some little in-house uh googie things on on facebook we'll just go and do a private message bidding chat and do that and uh so there's there's a new thing, but yeah. So Con of Wrath, we're gonna, this has been going to be a crazy year, and I've got two or three new things I can't talk about yet that I'm working on. Um, so and and uh, one thing has nothing to do with Trek; it's just a new kind of career path I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm getting into. But uh, a couple of Trek things, and but it's going to be a few months, uh, hopefully. And um, but the Con of Wrath is getting back on front burner. If you don't know about my documentary, go look that up at conorath.com. But uh, in Trekland, the, my blog and videos are going to ramp up a little more. And um, there's a small little publishing thing I may be getting involved in. And um, still our cartography that came out. I hope everybody enjoyed their Christmas gifts. That's been, you know, very well received. And, and uh, here's here's my, you know, a lot of stuff going on. LarryNemichak.com and Trekland on Facebook and and all that in my Larry Nemechek Twitter. But here's two two little pieces I want to leave everybody with. If you enjoyed Stellar Cartography, if you enjoyed David Goodman's book, all the background things, um, if you want to see an Enterprise Companion, I hate to sound mercenary because I'm the world's worst used car salesman, but go buy the stuff. Because the only thing now that anybody understands is, uh, you know, the social media ticker, the original one, is <laughs> cash register sales. So, you know, go buy, give them as gifts, even if you get a markdown, whatever. Just get the, keep the tickers turning, and hopefully this kind of background boom we've been on, you know, will continue. But that's the best yeah. thing to do. And the other little piece of advice that's been passed down to me is we talk about a comeback, whether it's Enterprise Season 5 or – whatever the hell the next you know tv incarnation of trek is one of the best things and you know good old les moonves running cbs who has this anti-science fiction reputation his bigger thing is he likes things that make money he doesn't like things that don't make money and the i have been told i hadn't got to hear firsthand that the um quarterly financial calls and reports les moonves always takes pains to point out that the biggest performer for cbs on Netflix is not in CIS. It's not Big Bang Theory. It's Star Trek. Now, granted, there's, you know, 737 hours of Star Trek versus 47 seasons of NCIS and, you know, same thing of Big Bang. (laughs) But that corporately, they're very aware of that. So one of the best things, and I know there's other, uh, uh, Amazon Plus has Star Trek episodes you can watch. But one of the best things everybody can do, even if you have Blu-rays, if you've got dead time and you're not fighting for your TV, 
with anybody, get your TV on Netflix and watch Star Trek. Let that ticker roll. Even if you're not watching, just put it on the background. Don't put Weather <laughs> Channel on. Put Seriously, because the more yeah. ticks, the more it adds up. I mean, yes, CBS is making some money off of it, but the bigger thing right now is the barometer, the impact that is making. It shows the... The, yeah. the the audience is there, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's and, and really, and that that may that kind of thing may have more repercussions than we can even think about right now. Yeah, and I'm not talking about oh look, they're going to do this season five of Enterprise. I mean, just in a big picture, CBS corporately is paying attention to that, right. and I would think Netflix would you know kind of pay attention to that too. But yeah. it's obviously that corporately with the suits, this is a metric that they're paying attention to. So everybody, keep buying your Blu-rays. You do all the stuff, but when you have a spare moment, if there's some spare pixels on your TV, put it on Netflix on any of the Star Treks that you prefer and let it roll, and you'll be doing your franchise. Your, your franchise thanks you. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny, Larry, because I, I have all the DVD box sets right over there on that shelf. I have all the Blu-ray sets that have been released so far, but nevertheless, when I'm watching Star Trek, just watching, I almost always play it off Netflix. Because it's easy, it's right here mm -hmm. on the screen next to me, and I can just go straight through. I'm doing a DS9 rewatch right now, and I'm doing it on Netflix, even though I have the, the boxes over there. Not only do I have the box sets over there, I also have them all ripped into my iTunes locally, but I still play it <laughs> off Netflix anyway, because it's well, the easiest way. How many times do you walk in and get sucked into a movie that you've got sitting over here on a DVD or a Blu-ray, and you're even watching on a stupid commercial channel with commercials? And you, you know, I, you know, I do. My wife does this, and I'm like, you know, we have, if we want to watch it, we have it right over there without commercials. It's, ah, we're just mm -hmm. we're all yeah, such lazy bombs sometimes. But <laughs> yeah, right. but yeah, but in this case, if it's Star Trek, it's going for an ultimately cause bigger than all of us. Absolutely. So there, all there's right. a note to well, end on. Bigger than the Delphic Expanse. Oh well, that's that's pretty big. <laughs> which we did shoehorn into on the uh, on the stellar cartography maps, which we've you did right, yeah. And you showed that it's vast, not not just in you know like two D coverage area, but also the the depth of the expanse as well, right? It, that's ha it had it to be a uh, it had to be a three D yes a three D uh, yes. piece of thinking, Mister Spock. Yes, that's right. You have the advanced stellar cartography, like the Enterprise D. Yes, yes. Just a giant chamber to walk into. <laughs> right. Delphic Expanse, galaxy's largest uh, galactic wet lasagna noodle. <laughs> it sounds like a title right there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks again, Larry. Just, just my little, my little present for this show, Chris. There you go. <laughs> thanks, thanks again for having me. We'll see everybody. Uh, like I said, Trekland and LN.com, and we'll see you down the road. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed my talk with Larry tonight about Enterprise Season 3 and a bit about Season 4, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about on the network this week. So here's a quick look at some other things we've been discussing on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Janice ran. And Rand braces for impact against Kirk. If I were on that bridge and I needed to brace for impact... I would totally grab Kirk. I'd grab Rand. You'd grab Rand? All right. Yeah. Well, different strokes <laughs> for different folks, I guess. Earl Grey. Missing 24th century technology. How about, like, a gun that shoots hyposprays? No, I assume you mean it shoots out the... <laughs> 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 the, 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 the chemical. Oh, <laughs> Ow! <laughs> it's like a little mechanical thumb that dispenses it. The Ready Room. Affliction and Divergence. 
Yeah, the other interesting thing about that, though, is to compare the Klingon ethics with the Section 31 ethics, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, there are some groups within the Klingons who maybe don't feel exactly the same way. But then yeah. there's this group within the humans who feels completely different. And you kind of wonder what the Klingons think maybe about someone who wouldn't do this. The orb. Implications of genetic enhancement. And our scientific advancement is is picking up pace all the time, our technological advancement. I think the urge for us to artificially enhance ourselves is going to be too great for us to ignore. To the journey! Resolutions rewrite. Overall, this is a great story. It's about like love and loss and, and about moving on and not being able to move on and it has some baddies at the end, you know, and it's just, it's, yeah. uh, it's good. Come on, this is why Harlequin paperbacks get sold. Commentary, Trek stars. Iris Stephen Bear, Crash. I, I love Iris Stephen Bear. As, as much as, as uh, anyone can love a television showrunner who they never met. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I'm waiting for the, the other. Warp 5. Xenophobia and the Coalition of Planets. Justification in his mind is that the Vulcans were observing us. Mm. They knew the war was happening. Mm. They didn't do anything to stop it. But, you know, it really wasn't the place of the Vulcans to step in and stop World mm. War Three. Literary treks. James Swallow, The Poison Chalice. Everybody in this story is dragged into a situation they don't want, want to be in. And that's kind of where the, the title, The Poison Chalice, originally came from, is the idea that, you know, Riker is given this promotion, which uh, on paper sounds like a really great idea, but it's a poison chalice. You know, it, it turns out that it's not what he thought it was. And in fact, you know, he's being dragged into something that he doesn't want to be involved in. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a wide variety of places, including on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. So pick your favorite show and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek franchise. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us today about Enterprise Season 3 or, you know, anything Enterprise, you can do that in several ways. First, you can go to our website at trek.afilm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5 and that will come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website or you can go over to our forums at trek.afilm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners about the show, about Enterprise. Uh, there are categories there for everything about Star Trek. So come and join in the conversation there. And then if you prefer social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And you'll also find us on Twitter under username trekfm. If you'd like to find me, you can do that on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username and also on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And elsewhere on the network, you'll find me on several other shows. First, there's Literary Treks, which I do with Matthew Rushing. We talk about Star Trek books and comics on that show, and we interview authors. And in fact, you know, Larry and I tonight, we talked, we mentioned several times about David A. Goodman in his book, Federation, The First 150 Years. We actually had a great discussion with David on Literary Treks about that book back before it came out. So check that out if you're interested in that story. And same with Stellar Cartography. Larry has been with me on Literary Treks as well. 
to talk in depth about how that book came together, uh, what they were trying to achieve in uh, creating the new maps, and what you can expect from that. So uh, check that show out as well. Also, Matthew and I do another show together. It's called The Orb. It's a lot like this show, except we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. And then I do The Ready Room every week, where I'm joined by hosts from all over the network, as well as special guests. Larry's on there with us from time to time as well to talk about different series, often TNG, but uh, sometimes other series as well. And I also have an interview show called Matterstream, where I interview actors and writers and scientists and creatives and all sorts of people about subjects that are loosely related to Star Trek or inspired by Star Trek. So you'll find all of those on the network and in all the places that I mentioned earlier. Before I let you go, I'd also like to ask you to please support our sponsor for today's show. Your support of our sponsor is really important for making it possible for us to bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Now, Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. They're the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles for you to choose from. They have new titles coming out every week, and I mean, just in the category of science fiction, sometimes they have 40, 50, 60 books coming out in a week. It's really quite amazing. And they have a lot of Star Trek books as well. Some of my favorites, like Prime Directive and Federation, which were both written by Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens, who wrote, as you know, a lot of the stories in season four of Enterprise. So uh, those are great things that you can pick up as well. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying out Audible. So you can choose Prime Directive, you can choose Federation, or if it's not Star Trek that you want, they have classics, they have current bestsellers, all kinds of just fantastic stuff there on the site. And it's yours to keep. So if you decide after the trial that you don't want to stick with Audible, you still get to keep that audiobook. So there's really nothing to lose, and you'll be helping us out a lot by going over and trying it out. So go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. And we really thank Audible for supporting Mark 5 and the network, and of course you for supporting Audible. Also, if you like this jazz rendition that we have of Where My Heart Will Take Me that we use here on Warp 5, maybe you like it better than the one that's used on the television show, you can get that by grabbing Andrew Allen's album Smooth Federation. Besides this track, Andrew also has nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek. So go pick up the album in iTunes or on Amazon. It's a really, really great album. I have it. I really love it. And it's just great work by Andrew. So pick that up and support what Andrew's doing there as well. Lastly, there's one more way you can directly help us keep Warp 5 coming to you each week, and that's by adopting some aliens. We have some great original alien illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. There are eight different ones, and there are thank you for your contributions to the network. We have different levels of donations that you can make. And you can choose what's right for you. You can choose which aliens you want, either as badges or art prints, and we'll get those over to you. And your donations help us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you each week. So we really thank you for helping us keep the network going in that way. Well, that's all we have for you on Warp 5 this week. Again, I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Larry. It's always interesting when, when he's on the shows with us. And I hope you'll join me again here next week in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>